and welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books as books as books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. I know I'm a little behind schedule on the podcast by about, oh, a year or so, but I'm back on track, I think. For a real quick recap, I now live in Texas, and I work at Book Lab 2, which is a limited edition book bindery. I still produce work under my imprint of Coyote Bones Press, and I still sometimes do work for Flying Fish Press, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Right now, it is nearly the end of February 2019, and so if you're in the Book Art Secret Society, you're all still probably recovering from the overstimulation and exhaustion brought on by Codex. And if you're not in the Book Art Secret Society, don't worry. It's not really that secret. It just sounds way cooler than saying woefully underappreciated and overlooked. So I thought it would be fun to start off this new season of Books in the Wild with a conversation about Codex and book arts in general. Today I'm joined by my colleagues at Book Lab 2, conservator, bookbinder, and founder of the original Book Lab, and now Book Lab 2, Craig Jensen, and edition bookbinder and fellow book labber, Mark Hammonds. We talk a little bit about the Codex Symposium and Book Fair in Berkeley, book arts in general, how we fell into book arts, and maybe even a little bit of book art gossip. So there's something for everyone. After the interview, I'll have a few more updates, and I will be back in a month. And now, here's the conversation with Book Lab 2. Should we all be wearing headphones? No. <laughs> so I'm here talking with Craig Jensen and Mark Hammond about, we just went to Codex, and do you want to just do a real brief introduction? Otherwise, I'll do an introduction at the beginning, and then I'll probably just make stuff up. Okay, well, I'm Craig Jensen. I'm the uh, proprietor of Book Lab 2. Uh, I've gone to all the Codex events. It's been an interesting adventure and arc of the program, and I've learned a lot. Is that what you wanted? Yeah, that works. Uh, my name is Mark Hammonds, and I, I work at Book Lab 2 in San Marcos, Texas. I've never been to Codex, so this was my first first time there, um, and look forward to many more. We can have a casual conversation. It's it's, not like... I feel weird. Why? I'm really nervous. Oh. <laughs> now that these cameras, these microphones are out. I can take I can take the microphones off and we could just use a recorder. No, it's okay. Are you sure? It'll sound better with the microphones. Yeah, it does. I feel like I'm broadcasting right now to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think this is my third codex. The se- there's seven of them, right? Yeah, this is the seventh. I guess we could talk also about what Codex is. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Peter Koch uh, and Susan Filter, his wife, and they started the Codex Foundation. And their intention was to try and bring a larger audience to fine press books, artist books, mm-hmm. handmade books. You know, they wanted as broad a, a brushstroke as possible in terms of beautiful books. Mm-hmm. And Peter used to talk about creating a marketplace for the books, and he considered Codex to be that. He talked about a rendezvous of book artists in uh, the Bay Area. From the very beginning, his intention was to make it a global thing, although it took a while to actually achieve that. Well, kind of, it is now, right? I mean, it's oh, it's all, very it's, much. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the event for these kind of books. It's yeah. the biggest thing in the world right now for, for this you know, the types of books mm-hmm. that, uh, that we saw at the book fair. Yeah, I guess I should mention too. I keep forgetting 
So the the Codex Fair we're talking about, we just got back. It was on February, what is it? February 3rd through 6th, 2019. And so it's held every other year. It's in the Bay Area. The Is the symposium always in Berkeley? Or is that a kind of a new The thing? symposium has always been in Berkeley. Okay. And the book fair was originally in Berkeley. Oh, I didn't know that. And okay. then they moved to Richmond right. when um, it was it was held at the uh, Student Center on the UC Berkeley campus. Mm. Uh, and then the university basically closed down the building for a renovation. But coincidentally, at the time that they closed down the building, Codex had pretty much outgrown the space that we were using. So they needed a bigger venue. And that's when they moved to the Cranley Pavilion in yeah. Richmond. That's a huge, huge space. There was over 200 vendors. And each year there's a, a theme that goes with the oh, symposium yeah, yeah. and book fair, right? So this year was, mm-hmm. was Nordica. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what some of the other themes were. Uh, they, they had um, um, last uh, year or last time it was Chinese, right? Yeah, it was Chinese. Last time mm-hmm. they had um, Australia one year. Oh. They had um, Mexico, and interestingly enough, Mexico and Australia started their own um, branches of Codex. So there is a Codex Mexico and a Codex Australia. Oh, that's cool. You know, oh. it, and then Mexico had on one of the even years they had a Codex meeting of Mexican book artists hmm. that was uh, kind of a big deal. And the exhibit, they, they mounted an exhibit from that that was in Washington, D.C., uh, sponsored by the Mexican embassy, maybe at the embassy. I, don't, I, I didn't go to that, so I don't know the details. Oh, that's cool. So what is your guys's? what was your favorite tables? Is there other people that you, I mean, besides your friends, but are there people that you <laughs> seek out to go to their tables because you know they're going to have something good or... I, I was kind of looking for forward to seeing Nomad Letterpress's table. Nomad Letterpress is run by uh, Pat Randall, and I was kind of excited to see one of the books that they're producing with Hannah Cousins, um, and the book is about a journey she took with her husband from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and uh, basically it's kind of like a travelogue with accompanying uh, lino cuts and pochoir mm. illustrations. I don't know if I saw that one. It's so overwhelming. I feel like I... I Every time we talked about what we saw there, we were all talking about different things. Or, or it was mm-hmm. as if I didn't, we didn't go to the same fair or something. And it's also, you know, everyone hones in on different things. Mm-hmm. That they, when they're walking down an aisle, they'll see different things and everyone will go in different directions, you know, mm-hmm. based on their own interests, too. Yeah. Well, I was working part-time at Flying Fish Press's table with Julie Chen. So it's interesting... I don't know, being on that side, and then and then also wandering around. And, and you had a or book lab, you used to have a table there. The first couple of years, we had um, a book lab table. First year, we had a, just our own table, and then the second year, I shared a table with Gaylord Shanleck. Mm. But I realized, after the second time, I think it was the second time, that I was locked down at the table with my stuff, mm-hmm. and really what I wanted, I didn't have anything to sell. What I sell is my service, and all the people I wanted to talk to were at the other tables. Mm-hmm. So I stopped reserving a table and just decided to be a kind of free agent at Codex and walk around and talk to people and meet people. That's Benny the shop dog. <laughs> <laughs> so the first couple of years, I was I didn't really get to meet as many people as I have in subsequent years. Oh. But last Codex, 2017... I met one of my clients, David Pasco, wanted me to go talk to Eula Claudia Mann of Vervant Object. 
She's from Leipzig. <laughs> that and, wasn't really good. <laughs> and, and her and her, her, and her traveling partner, um, and Annette that's, uh, Friedrich, Friedrich, were doing a Southwest uh, driving tour. And I invited them to come visit mm. me in San Marcos. And they came and spent the night, looked at books, and hung out with my wife and I. And it was a, a lot of fun. So I was really excited this year to see Eula again and surprised that uh, Aneta was there as well. So it was kind of mm. like a reunion. And it seems like every codex, I always meet somebody yeah. new. Three codexes ago, maybe four, is when I met Jamie Murphy of the Salvage Press in Dublin, Ireland. And we kind of became connected because he was, we were sitting at a table. I didn't know who he was. And I had mentioned that my son's name was Nicholas Jensen. Mm-hmm. And Jamie just immediately kind of flipped out. And he says, wait a minute, your son's name is... Nicholas Jensen, do you know what that means? I said, yes, I know who Nicholas Jensen is. <laughs> the type designer, the, oh, first, oh, the oh. first Roman face oh, okay. type design. And he goes, you named your son Nicholas Jensen after Nicholas Jensen? I said, yes. He goes, that's amazing. <laughs> Something like, maybe you're, you're my new best friend. <laughs> and, and we kind of hit it off and became pals and hung out at subsequent codexes. And we, you know, often said it'd be fun to work together. And, mm. you know, we talked about maybe... Me going over to Dublin and working on a book, doing a binding there for him. Or this last year, he contacted me and said, well, we'd like to do the book Town. And so we bound that at mm-hmm. Book Lab. So it was the first time we had worked together. But also the first truly intercontinental book job that I've done. I mean, I've worked with a couple of presses in Canada. But mm-hmm. to actually ship the books overseas was kind of an interesting experience. I didn't realize Town was the first time you guys like yeah. collaborated. Oh, yeah. that's cool. I I do think that most of the book people I've met have been at either Codex or PBI. Like, I think those are the two places to meet book people. And, and it is that same thing where you're talking to someone, and you're like, oh my god, you're such a nerd, and we're best friends now. And it's like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's... it's there's some kind of... Like, the, the camaraderie is, is, is nice. So we were talking about who are the people that come to oh, Codex. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you've got... Um, you've got people who are publishers Mm -hmm. and in most cases practitioners as well they're printers book designers artists like wood engravers or some kind of printmaking process Mm -hmm. as well as doing the type and the printing but there are also material vendors there's leather producers tool makers Mm -hmm. shanelino basically makes tools and is always a big hit she Mm -hmm. pretty much sells out i think this is her second time and her table's empty by the end of Codex. Yeah, I wanted to buy some stuff from her. I waited yeah. too long. Her stuff's awesome. She's mm-hmm. like so creative. And then there are uh, a handful of book dealers who specialize in artist books and fine press books. And then there are people who are primarily publishers like Two Ponds Press, Noachem Press, uh, who you know don't actually do the work themselves, but they facilitate bringing the people together to make the books and mm-hmm. often pick the project and then hire the people to do the project or recruit the people to do the projects. So it's a really interesting mix of people. But, I mean, the nerd fest is practitioners. I mean, <laughs> the majority of the people are people who make books or, you mm-hmm. know, design type or print books. And so it, it it's like a total nerd out completely. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, if somebody you know is in a restaurant and there's like a codex table there, they must be thinking... Who are these people? <laughs> what are they talking about? Yeah. What did you? Is it what you expected, Mark? For the most part, I was expecting you know the book artists and the tool makers and that kind of thing, like like everything Craig just said. But mm-hmm. what I was surprised to see were some design binders there, 
which that's, I didn't expect at all. That's a fairly uh, new thing. That the first first couple of codexes that wasn't mm-hmm. the case. I mean, John Demerit and I think myself were the only people who specifically were bookbinders. There are some presses that do their own bindings, like Fool's Cap and presses like that, where they do everything internally. Lately, there's been more uh, designer bookbinders showing up. The circle is growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was really happy to see like Kathy Abbott and Tracy Rollage. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy comes up with these really cool, innovative, like conservation style structures and bindings. Yeah. And yeah, their table was amazing. Yeah, but I just I just wasn't expecting it. I I met so many you know designer bookbinders that I just I hadn't anticipated seeing. You told me that, that that you were like I never imagined I would meet these people. Mm-hmm. They're like legendary. Some of a them. lot of them were <laughs> even from overseas. I mean yeah. Germany and like the UK. A lot of UK artists. Yvetta, she's a kind of a big deal in in England now. Mm-hmm. We always have a big uh, crush of work before Codex. So the year right. before Codex, we usually get recruited to work on you know several projects that will then you know be premiering or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. at Codex. Well, this time there was, what, seven books? That... S- seven books that we work on, mm-hmm. worked on in three different publishers. I always like to go to those tables, and now that I don't have a table of my own, and actually mm-hmm. hang out at their table and, you know... <laughs> you hear what people say about your work? Is no. It... Oh. So, I can ex- so like, they, I can explain what's going on, because oh, people oh, okay. ask questions. <laughs> no. I just thought it was just, like, yeah, li- I'm basking the in side. the glory... <laughs> Uh, no, I can explain, and and they enjoy it. They and and in fact, like Jamie, for instance, the only time he got to go out and work the other tables was when I was manning his table for him, and I, I learned that oh, he when was I there alone with me. Yeah, I shared a table with Gaylord the sec, the last year that I had a table, and he was able to go off mm-hmm. and look at stuff while I was taking care of the table. If they if they're interested in that, I'll stand in for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of fun to be at the table and talk to people about the binding side because yeah. usually they don't they don't get that spiel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, well, I, well, when I was working at Julie's table yeah talking to people about the work is is it's kind of amazing because it, and it is interesting because you can kind of tell the type of person who is interested in the books because well, Julie Chen's books I don't know, they're, they're I don't even know how you describe them they're not they're not codexes they're movable inter, like game like books and they're sculptural. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you always have the, the book binders come up and they're like, how did you do this? And then you have other people come up and they're like, what is the story behind this? So you have to mm-hmm. learn about it from all these different aspects. And right. I don't know, I, I just find that kind of interesting. I, I find it interesting what draws people to the work, whether it's you know, the craft of it or the, the story behind it. Well, I'm also, of course, always want to go to the tables of the, let's say, the rock stars of the press world or the private press mm-hmm. world because they, they always have something really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Russell Moret or Gaylord Chanelec or uh, Peter Koch or, you know, there's there's a number of, of, of characters that are, like, mm-hmm. really um, established and and their work is always superb. So it's, it's, um, it's a treat to actually see and mm-hmm. touch the books. Um, because, you know, we don't get to do that at Book Lab unless we actually work on the books. Right. You know, we don't get that sort of intimate contact except at Codex. Right. right. And I think that's why a lot of people like Codex. Right. Well, and, excuse me, at Julie's Table, it's so important for her as the artist because, yeah, like you said, like you can't go find her work at a bookstore right. or something. So if people are going to buy her books, they want to handle them because they're expensive and they want to go make sure that this is what they want. And 
you can't tell that from a photograph. Like, you need to handle them. And so she does get, you know, a lot of orders just sustain her till the next codex, you know. Yeah, I think some of the more established presses, codex is like a major event for oh, them. Oh, yeah. And hats off to Peter and Susan because mm-hmm. they have been, I think, successful beyond anyone's imagination mm-hmm. that, you know, that Codex would be as big and as important as it is. And you can see, you know, when you look around the floor, you can see there's tourists, people who are interested right. and just, you know, they heard about it and they thought, oh, that'd be cool. I'm going to go do that this weekend. Mm-hmm. And then there are all the practitioners, the people who make books and, you know, uh, designer binders scouting for books that might be in sheets. People just like want to see what other people are doing. And then there are people that are buying books. Yeah. And you can tell, you know, I mean, there's there are people that literally come from all over the world now mm-hmm. to buy books at Codex. It's the first couple of years... I think everybody was like a little nervous because right. it, there wasn't that much happening in terms of actual sales, mm-hmm. but um, they've kind of knocked it out of the park, I think. And this is a theory, so I could be wrong, but I think that, I mean, I haven't been in this whole world that long, but it does seem that there are more people interested in handcrafted things in general, so mm-hmm. I think handmade books are part of that because you see all these like pop-ups of like artisanal foods and coffee and beer and people are sick of all this disposable crap you know or like cheaply made (laughs) things and Mm -hmm. if they're gonna spend their money then they want it to be meaningful and to last there's all these digital scans of our ebooks and all that stuff books aren't even necessary anymore because you have everything's on online and but it's never going to replace the book and i think it's kind of going backwards because text as content is so readily available they're going to go for more like the preciousness of it. Or not, phys- maybe not preciousness, but... The maybe. physical book. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I've read a few books that talk about the haptics, you know, the hand-mind thing in human beings. Mm-hmm. And several people have posited that human beings are actually born with an instinct to understand what a book is. Mm-hmm. To have something in your hands and turn pages. You give them to babies and they get it immediately. Mm-hmm. They give them these cloth, we used to call them quiet books when I was a kid. They would, Parents would make them for their kids in church. So they'd give them something to do. Oh. And they would turn the pages and it was a quiet book. And they would just, they, they got it. They got it. It's almost like in our brains and our the, this whole hand to mind thing of the book. And with the onset of digital technology, I think a lot of people are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I like books. Right. I, I don't want to give up my books. And then there's people like us, you know, who like go take it way to the extreme and make these like amazing, beautiful physical objects. Mm-hmm. When people ask me about it, they don't get it until I say, okay, think of books as like a sculpture or a painting mm-hmm. or a print or a performance art piece. It's another art form, only the book is the form as opposed to a piece of canvas or a piece of paper, right. or, you know, metal conformed into something, or wood conformed into something. And it's, in its own right, an art form. And I think Codex has really helped that Yeah, happen. for sure. They used to talk about how hard it was to exhibit books in museums. Now museums regularly have exhibits yeah. of books. You can't touch them, you can't feel them, and people immediately have that sort of visceral reaction. It's like, I want to touch that, mm-hmm. I want to touch it. Mm-hmm. But they're still drawn to it and, you know, want to go and look at them in the glass case. Well, there's several, I think, book artists <clears throat> that have broken into the, the fine art world of, like, Colette Fu or Sam Winston. Like Timmy Lee? Timmy Lee, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and people in the fine art world who have said, hey, I want to do a book. Right. Like that uh, James Sienna book that we bound. David Hockney just did one. Yeah. You were saying Jack White's trying to get into the yeah the yeah book so, art yeah, world too. Third, third Man Records is is doing um, something like artist books as well. And there's another place. Oh, there's another one in L. A. That's like used to be a record thing. I can't remember what they're called. Yeah, it's our time. It's our <laughs> time. <happen>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really an interesting point in history because like a lot of the. Um, small colleges and liberal mm-hmm. arts schools that have book arts programs are struggling because the university and the college uh, area is sort of seen through the eye of a business. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the metric that they use to judge the success of it. And people that are in book arts, you know, don't go out and make tons of money and then become <laughs> major donors to the university or the college. Yeah. On the other hand, solid universities are all starting to have history of the book programs, classes, mm-hmm. they're, you know, the materiality of the book. You know, they're teaching these classes to people in the university setting to like, I mean, the book has become an object of study in mm-hmm. the university. So it's like we're, we're losing ground in one way, but we're gaining ground in another way. That's true. I, I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Well, and I think people forget, too, that just the book itself, it is a, a technology. Way longer lasting than any of the other stuff that keeps coming and going now. I mean, we have that book design class come and visit us every year mm-hmm. here at Book Lab. Right. You know, I'm not sure what their core curriculum is, but, but they're interested in seeing what we make. So, I mean, that is another example of of a university, you know, teaching some element of the book. Right. You know, I've got this Book Lab collection of books that Book Lab has made over the years. Mm-hmm. And I'm here in San Marcos where there aren't a whole lot of people interested in the book arts. So when somebody comes to visit and wants to look at the books, it's a thrill for me yeah. to have them sit down and look through the collection. I mean, it's it's uh, it's exciting. They always come away like with a whole different attitude about how mm-hmm. uh, what a book is. No, there's definitely something like weirdly uh, fascinating and intimate about showing people your books. Yeah. It's so exciting. Well, even when we went to Julie's for the party, like there's so many people just like perusing the shelf, like, yeah. looking through everything. And what does she read? Yeah, <laughs> I was picking through her models. Yeah, we were pulling mm-hmm. the models off the shelf. So, what do you think about the future of Codex? Are there things that you want to see, or? Uh, I worry about. Um... Uh, the founders and you know mm. that they're going to age out of it and you know a lot of these things you know exist because of the energy and drive right. of the people who have the vi- had the vision to start it um, because they have a board and because there are um, people engaged with the Codex Foundation that aren't just practitioners but are you know, collectors and uh, curators and so I think there's hope for it but um you know, Peter and uh, Susan are such large, large personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you worry about the the longevity if they, you know, decide to not be involved anymore or for whatever reason can't be. So I, I worry about that. But I can't imagine after this year, in spite of any odd or weird developments that might emerge, that mm-hmm. there wouldn't be a, a Codex 2021. Right. There, I mean, there's just so much momentum behind it. So I think somebody would step up if that was necessary mm-hmm. to uh, keep it going. Um, it doesn't seem like any demand as far as exhibitors go. Like there will, ne- they, they will away. never have yeah, a hard time like a list, finding yeah. exhibitors. Yeah, they they they're all they're oversubscribed now, mm-hmm. and, and and I think after the first year, that's been the case every year. Mm-hmm. 
But the word's out there. There's, you know, there's definitely a, a codex buzz that goes way beyond people who print books. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, pretty interesting. Well, and there's a lot of um, students, too. I mean, so I went to Mills College. There's a book art program there. And they make, it, well, during codex years, they make all of the students go. Like in any class. Even like the introduction to book art students have to go. And, and I think that's great. And when you do see students, especially undergrads, that are just, just in an intro class just to fulfill like a, I don't know, basic elective. Humanity Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do think they're blown away. Because when I first got into book art, I didn't even know there was such a thing as book art. I started making zines and things like that in that community, and which looking back are you know appalling because they're all folded the wrong way <laughs> and stapled. But it, I mean that's how I, I got into it. I started volunteering at a conservation lab. I took a couple workshops and things. Like it was really there where I was like, oh, like you can people do this. This is a thing, and it was like epiphany of like this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I think there's, I mean, not everybody, of course, but there's a lot of students that go in there and they're, maybe they feel the same way where they see like artists and these bookbinders and printers and like, I, it's not a lost art. Like I kind of hate mm-hmm. that term that people. Mm-hmm. It's not. Oh yeah. That's such yeah. a worn, that's a tired old trope that they <laughs> yeah. just keep dragging out. It's like, ugh. I, I, I was, I wish I was exposed to Codex when I was in college mm-hmm. um, because I, I didn't know about really the book arts or letterpress printers, or, you know, any of these people that are exhibiting at Codex, my only introduction to books was was through, like, rare book rooms and museums and that kind of thing. But mm. I hope, you know, more colleges and universities expose their students to this kind of thing. Because I sure wish I had it. Well, there were a lot of colleges there, right? Like, well, North Bennett had a table last time. Mills had a table. But, I mean, the maybe centers, that's like... The Center for Book Arts have tables. Right. Maybe, but that's like maybe that's like preaching to the choir, where you have the schools mm-hmm. with book programs out yeah. there. Well, a school with a book program, people will be attracted to the book fair and then see a table. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could go to school and learn this. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there is there, there's a there's a re, there's a good reason for them to be there, and mm-hmm. I'm glad they're there. But yeah, when you go yeah. to Codex, it's like I can't buy books for everybody at Codex. So you get to talk to other people and find out what you know. What are, what's their thinking like? What are mm-hmm. they? What's motivating them? Why do they do what they do? So there's two things I wanted to talk about. I was going to talk about talking more about like what Book Lab does, which is like additions for artists, mm-hmm. and then but there are book artists out there who do all of it, and then right. there are printers out there who need binders, and there are binders out there that need printers, and so. But then also our backgrounds of how we got into books. Mm-hmm. I fell. I just stumbled into it. And I suspect both of you guys did too. Mm-hmm. But um, I was, you know, going to school and didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was just, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do when you're in your early 20s is go to college. I stumbled on an article about hand, hand paper making and it kind of piqued my interest. And so I went to the library and found all these books by Dard Hunter about hand paper making and they just blew me away. And that was the first time I'd seen a handmade book, a private press book, a limited edition book, whatever you want to call it. And I dabbled in paper making for about a year. And the university, Brigham Young University, they, because I was the first person that actually looked at those books, they were really interested in why. And they had a job for a library conservator. This was in the mid 70s. And so they offered me the job. For something I didn't even know what it was. It's amazing. And um, does that piss you off, Mark? 
<laughs> well, yeah, actually, um, Craig's in the book, The Thread That Binds, which is interviews with private practice bookbinders, which I read when I was at North Bennett Street School. Oh, right. And I was like, really? This guy <laughs> just got, he just got selected and paid to learn all these things Yeah, on oh. the job. Here I, was... I am in debt in school for two years. <laughs> I was very lucky. They, uh, there wasn't an academic track for library conservators mm-hmm. at the time. That didn't start until the early 80s. It's something they wanted to do, and they, they saw my interest and thought it was similar to what they needed. And I was totally frustrated with the university environment, didn't know what I was doing there. And it was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. So, yeah, for, for the first couple of years I worked for them, I just went from workshop to workshop. And, I mean, the workshops then were like people's studios in their homes, and, uh, you know, it sort of culminated with a year at the Library of Congress as an intern, which was kind of where I got my master's degree. It was a pretty intense full-time job, but I was paid by Brigham Young to be there in Washington, D.C., working at the Library of Congress. That's where I met Don Etherington, who is my mentor, and helped me develop the set of eyes that I have that I think sees quality and understands quality. I couldn't have got that any other way, so I was, I was very lucky, but it was a time when that sort of thing could happen. It doesn't mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um What about you, Mark? How did you? I was in museum studies uh, in college and actually took an internship in a rare book room. You know, aside from... This is in Georgia. In Georgia. Mm-hmm. this Yeah, I went to a state school there called Kennesaw State University, which is actually quite a large school. And they had a small rare book room where I went to um, kind of study not only the authors, but the bindings and kind of talk about them with students and classes and I kind of started learning about books as a physical object. And, you know, I did that for a year and then took, you know, a nine to five job after college, which I hated. Mm-hmm. And that actually made me think, well, I loved working in that rear book room. I love books. You know, how could I pursue a career doing that? How could I support myself in the book world somehow? And that's kind of how I found North Bennett Street School, which is up in Boston. And that's a two year full-time program uh, where you get a lot of bench work doing repair work and book binding. Can you um, Um, define what bench work is? Bench work? uh, (laughs) So I'm not, I wasn't writing papers. I wasn't doing scholarly work. Um, We were getting, receiving demos, demonstrations from our instructor, and then going back to our benches. And basically we were just practicing all day. We were at the bench actually physically working on projects full-time for the entire duration of the program for two years, full-time. So it's very intense. <laughs> and then, and I got really lucky because towards the end, Craig contacted my instructor, Jeff Altapeter, with the interest in hiring somebody to come work for him. And um, Jeff put me forward and put me in contact with Craig, and that's how I came to be here. Yeah, when I called um, Jeff, I'm sort of on the career trajectory. I'm on the sort of finishing end of the career. <laughs> in fact, Eula and Iveta, when they came here, we had a long discussion about how do you how do you disengage from the field? And they mm-hmm. said, you have to find someone and teach someone what you know. And that really had an impression on me. And they weren't the first people to say that, but their emphatic statement of that really had an impression on me. And it was shortly after that that I called Jeff and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking I would like to have an apprentice and an associate that I could teach some things and also turn over part of the business because if the business isn't going to end if I stop offering the service, the work is still going to be out there. And he said, I've got just the guy for you. And it was Mark. <laughs> and then I got an emergency email. <laughs> Call me immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we went back and forth a little bit, and you know there was some. It, it took a little while to get it figured out, but we figured it out, and uh, and then we realized very quickly that 
we had too much work for two people. And that's when Carrie came into the picture. Mm-hmm. And it was just, we had already kind of decided to not interview any more people for the job. And Julie contacted me and yeah, said, I was moving said here, uh, yeah. that, that Carrie was going to move to Texas. And I thought, oh, hmm. And so we held the job open until we met Carrie and boom, <laughs> another match. Another, yeah. yeah, I guess I, I kind of fell into books the same way. So I went to an art high school, like a, it was a magnet school, and uh, I was a painting and drawing major in high school. So I knew I wanted to do art. I didn't know in like what capacity yet. But when I went to college, so I, I switched my major to um, art history, and so I actually got a, a bachelor's in art history. But I was I was involved in that whole I, I don't know like the, like the punk rock music scene and did zines and. Um, did a lot of zine exchanges and that sort of thing and but again I didn't know what book art was I didn't know people did that and I took like a photo book making class once and he kind of introduced me to things and um, that's when I started the conservation lab taking workshops there and it was just weekend workshops Um, it was part of like the continuing ed program I think the conservators wanted to to teach people stuff but he's like oh well it's like there's this thing called book arts and I saw a few examples of work and one of the the first examples of work I saw was Julie Chen and so I was like oh this is this is what this is what I want to do like this whole (laughs) thing is what I want Mm -hmm. so Julie teaches at Mills College I wanted to go to Mills I wanted to study with Julie and I do tend to well I think like all artists I've met like fixate on things so I was like I want to like, Julie and I are going to be best friends. <laughs> and so I, I, I did go to... And, and it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to grad school at Mills. Julie was my professor. She's the bookbinding professor there. And then eventually, after grad school, I started working for her. I worked for her for, like, four years. And, yeah, so she... Uh, Julie's definitely my mentor and, and now friend, I guess. And then now I'm in Texas. But it is funny that I do think that everybody I talk to who's into this field is... There is a moment where you're like, oh, this is... There's a lot this of serendipity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I guess, do you want to explain what Book Lab does? Because I, I guess to differentiate between the niche fields that are happening. Well, Book Lab 2... Book Lab 2, sorry. ...is, you know, we have two, I guess, product offerings. We do box making for primarily institutions, libraries, or museums in fairly substantial batches. So we work for the Morgan Library, work for NYU. We do some work for the Blanton Museum in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas at UT, and a few other places that will order multiple boxes, but each one is is custom made for an item. So I go out once a year. Mark and I now go out once a year to New York to measure books at the Morgan Library and at NYU, and then over the subsequent year we make boxes for all those items that we measured. And then the other thing we do is limited edition binding. I got into that when I, I worked at Brigham Young as a conservator for a while, and then I left Utah and moved to Texas and worked at the University of Texas as a book conservator for several years. And then I just decided I really didn't want to work in the institutional environment. I wanted to work on my own. And so I started a company called Jensen Bindery, and the idea was that I would do rare book conservation for small libraries and for book dealers and also box making because I was really into the sort of manufacturing 
engineering side of box making. It really excited me and intrigued me, you know, things that you could do to streamline that and make it more efficient, but still also be very custom and handmade. And shortly after I made that break from the institutional world, I met a guy named Gabrielle Romans, who ran the Plain Wrapper Press. At that time was kind of considered the preeminent hand press printer, perhaps in the world. And he had a technical question about a job he was doing. And I, you know, we discussed it and I asked him who was going to bind the edition. And he said he didn't know. And I said, why don't you let me do it? And he said, okay. And it really connected with me. He was a big enough guy in the field at the time that he was really happy with my work. So he started telling people how much he liked my work. And the phone just started ringing off the hook for edition work. And so my whole focus on conservation and book conservation shifted to edition binding. And really from then forward, I never really looked back, you know, really began to hone the edition skills and focus on that. Now, Book Lab Incorporated, which is a company between Jensen Bindery and Book Lab 2, got into a lot of other areas as well, but we never stopped doing the edition work. That's always been my focus. And when I downsized and just became Book Lab 2 in the early 2000s, I decided that I would just do that in the box making. We focus on small editions because there's just three people here. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they have to be small. I mean, one of the books that might be coming down the pipeline in the next year is a book club of California book, and it's 350 copies. And I'm not sure that we're really capable of doing that many, but we're still going to look at it and see because Russell Moret's designing it, and it would be fun to work with him. And so the editions that we usually work on are anywhere between? Yeah, to, let's see, between uh, 25 and 75. Mm, okay. Under 100. Mm-hmm. I've done one edition since Book Lab 2 started in 2002 that was over 100, I think, just one. And that was a Book Club of California book, coincidentally. Well, and I think with, as an artist, too, it takes a lot of trust to make sure that they're going to see your vision through and stay true to to the concept. And so I do think it means a lot that these artists are like seeking you out to do additional work. When I met Gabrielle Rummins, mm-hmm. and I did that first book, the Natalo uh, Calvino uh, story, when, when I did that book, the thing he told me he liked about me was that I was super focused on understanding what he wanted Mm -hmm. and that my responses to him were not, oh, why don't you do it this way or why don't you do it that way? They were always very technically oriented. It's like, well, you want this. However, if you want this, you're going to need to do this. And so I gave him technical feedback Mm -hmm. to help him realize his vision as well as listening to what he wanted to help him achieve his his vision, and that had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, because that's the first time I'd ever done that. That's always the way I approach it from then on. And I've you know learned over the years that a, a lot of binders, uh, when I was just starting doing this in the you know mid '80s, had very strong opinions about their artistic vision, right. and and there tended to be a little bit of clash sometimes between the person making the publishing the book, printing the book, designing the book, and the craftsperson they hired to do the binding. And that just never kind of came into my way of dealing with people because of my initial introduction into the field. And I didn't know any other way to go about it. And I think that's, in the long run, really held me in good stead because some people, I think, get annoyed with how forthcoming I am with information about, you know, how to make it work. I mean, it's like sometimes people just say, 
just do it, you know, <laughs> don't tell me so much. I've found in the long run that that's been a really good way, way to deal with small press people. Well, and there's that weird, the recognition of artisans doing work for artists and, mm-hmm. and it's complicated. I don't really know what the right answer is. I really want to tell a story, but I'm wondering if I'm going to get in trouble. There is a person I know who is an artist and um, there was this infamous story that she would tell about how she got into a screaming fight with Judy Chicago because Judy Chicago is, you know, this this feminist icon artist and she did that piece with the the dinner table, like table settings for, for different women. And that was her concept. It is her piece, of course. She made a big deal about hiring women to do her fabrication. And none of them are named. And so this particular person at at an artist talk was like, how can you claim to be a feminist? How can you do this work for women? And you're not going to name any single person that worked on this piece with you. And it apparently turned into this screaming fight and this person had to leave. But, but it is, it's an interesting idea. Like, is art in the concept or is it in the fabrication or is it well, you know, a I, collaboration? I, I, over the years, I've done, I've done books for a lot of people and usually I'm, or my company is noted in the colophon. But I've noticed in some of the journals when they're critiquing a private press book, they'll say how amazing this is and how amazing that is and how the presentation is, blah, 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 blah. And they'll say what the paper was and what the typeface was and, you know, of course, who the printer is Mm -hmm. and and all this stuff. And they won't mention who the binder was. And over the years, I've become really offended by that. Right. Because, I mean, frankly, some of the books that I work on, it's an honor for me to work on them, but those books are better because I worked on them. (laughs) (laughs) And a right. lot, and often the first thing people see is they open it up and it's like they see this amazing binding. So that's actually created a, a thing for me. You know, I'm 68. I'm thinking, well, how many more years can I do this? And so I'm starting to think, well, maybe now it's time for me to do my art. So that's kind of my trajectory. I don't know if I have any art in me because I've been a practitioner and a craftsman my entire life. I've had to do some engineering creativity. I've never much in the in the area of design. It's always been more mm-hmm. the underlying stuff that you don't see or that you don't necessarily well, think about. I mean, about. that's a creative act itself, though, too. It's like, I think like so. Problem solving in general is, is creative. I, I, I agree, yeah. but you know, can you create a whole project on that? Mm-hmm. That's that's. I'm kind of curious about that. I intend to try it before I expire, <laughs> before I'm finished. <laughs> And, you know, if it resonates, fine. You know, if people want to buy them, fine. If they don't, that's fine, too. I don't care. I just want to, I want to try it out. Maybe I'll do one and I'll say, forget this. I'm just going to go camping for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I do love talking to people who've been in the field for a really long time. I mean, I don't, like, you've been in the field longer than, like, Mark and I have been alive. That's right. (laughs) It's, um... Since 1976. (laughs) So it's always interesting to me, I would consider you an artist and an artisan, and so it's interesting when you say, like, oh, I don't know if there's habit in you to have these ideas or concepts, but you're navigating through all this problem-solving already, which is, again, like a creative act itself. It's the same thing when I work with Julie Chen. She doesn't consider herself a writer. It's like, you write all the time, Julie. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, but I'm not a writer. And it's just this weird, It's maybe it's just the technicality. that. Well, I think, uh, you, I I think you realize, it's like, you know, I, I know how much I've poured into learning what I do. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about 
let's say, doing something that Gaylord Shanlight does. He's poured the same amount of energy into his art that I poured into my craft. Mm -hmm. I'm like blown away by that. And it's like, I can't imagine. Well, like there's no room to do that and what I've done in, in my mind. Right. In my mind. If someone were trying to get into the book field or learn more about... Because again, when I got into book art, I just discovered book art, and I'm still learning how many specialties there are within that field. So if somebody was just being introduced to it, where would you suggest that they start? Or how would you suggest that they navigate that? I would suggest starting with a workshop and kind of figuring out where your hand skills are at. You know, do I like doing this? Do I like working with my hands? And then I, I think I would explore the field. I, I think I would explore all the schools that offer this kind of thing, like Mills, North Bennett, University of Alabama, their, their MFA program. Iowa. Um, well, and they're Iowa. so different, too. Like They Iowa all have is... different specialties. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's like each one has its own avenue you can go down. I would check out the book fairs, Codex, that kind of thing. And I think before I like made a decision, I would just explore everything. I think that would be a smart thing to do instead of just jumping into one thing and then having a regret later. There's a, a number of uh, book art centers. There's Minnesota, there's the Morgan, there's the Austin Book Art Center, which is a you know nascent, young, new, three-year-old thing. There's uh, San Francisco. So I think that's like a really good place for people to go and, and do multiple workshops. Mm-hmm. Each one offers a whole panoply of paper making, letterpress printing, book binding, all kinds of things so that there are like opportunities like springing up all over the place for people to you know dabble without making a big commitment if you're going to get hooked you get hooked pretty quick <laughs> and once you get hooked you find the places to go gravitate towards them especially if you've got good fortune of having a book arts center of some kind of well don't forget the new york book arts you know center mm-hmm. for book arts that's i mean the, the, the grandfather of them all uh you know how many people have come out of that Hundreds of people have come through that. Uh, what is the Telluride one? The American oh. Academy for Bookbinding. Oh. Also, yeah, I left that out. Yeah. And obviously school's not the only way. Yeah. You know, right, you right, can right. learn this. I'm just positing that as, as a way to explore what's out there. Yeah. I wish when I had first got into the field that I was less intimidated to talk to people. I, I do <laughs> think that, like you said about sharing what you know, I, I do think that most book artists and printers and binders and everyone in this field is so excited that someone is also excited about what you do they're more than willing to share information they're more than willing to talk to you about these kind of things no one is trying to keep all this information secret really that should be emphasized that you shouldn't feel intimidated to say what's up and Maybe not approach him like I do with, like, we're going to be best friends now and, you know, <laughs> you're going to be my mentor. But just, you know, tell them what you're interested in and maybe they can point you in the right direction. Yeah. Um, also, I, I feel like libraries are severely underutilized and most libraries have a special collections area where the librarians are, in my experience, super excited to show off their collection. So... Mm-hmm. You know, go go to special collections, look at artist books, look at fine press books, yeah. and see where you are drawn to. Well, there's obviously a lot of libraries that think it's important. Yeah. The stuff that we're making. There are rich repositories of these things for people to go look at, and and you learn a lot from that. I mean, it was looking at Dard Hunter books. Mm-hmm. 
that got me into the field. I, it's like when I, I remember when I picked up the first one, it was like, what is this? I mean, I was feeling the paper because I was interested in paper making and he made all the paper for his books. He designed the type, he cast the type, he did everything. And I'm feeling, I'm going, my God, this is like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I had no understanding of what it was. Mm-hmm. I, had, I didn't even have a clue. But yet I was sitting here, I was holding this like amazing thing. It's such an adventure, you know, mm-hmm. when you, that first gateway, when you first like go in, it's like, oh, wow. And yeah, I, I think that people should go to libraries and look at books and handle books because it's such a tactile experience too. Yeah. You're not going to get that from photos on the internet. I mean, I think it's what kept the book arts so long from being really recognized mm-hmm. is because they are so tactile. Mm-hmm. Whereas art in a museum, if you get too close, some guard comes up and says, <laughs> step back from the painting. Right. I, I, this happened to me at, at the De Young. We, were, we went to the... Um, <laughs> Oh, was it, it was Matisse? No, it's... Um, Gauguin. Gauguin. We went to the Gauguin show, and I noticed some things in one of the paintings, and I was like doing this, and I had my finger maybe five inches away from the painting, and a guard came up and said, step back from the painting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so a book, you know, it's like you almost have to touch a book yeah. to really get it. So, I mean, that was like one of the barriers that Codex was trying to break down was to get it recognized as a true art form because it had always been relegated to the more plebeian side of things because Mm -hmm. that's something that people touch and handle and they share and they pass it around. It wasn't the same as, you know, a million dollar painting hanging on the wall. That's interesting. Do you think it depreciates it because people touch it, or because? No, I think I think we're breaking through that. But I think that was one of the inhibiting factors. It was too common an item. Yeah. I mean, even you know, in the rare book collecting, it's like books as collecting objects, old books. Mm -hmm. You know, like Incunabula, early printed books, really famous books. They always were like the stepchildren in the art world. Like if it was at Sotheby's or wherever the auction was being held, was the books were like, oh yeah, you know, lot no seven hundred thousand dollars for these seven books. Now you know, it's like it's finally reached that place where it it is on a par with fine art. Because it is a fine art. It's, Absolutely. It's just something that you can't fully experience it unless you pick it up and touch it and handle it and turn the pages. Yeah. No, it, it definitely, it, it, I feel like it's more intimate of an experience because it relies on human interaction. It's also a time-based medium because you have to physically move through this item. Yep. And there is something really weird that I can't quite wrap my head around where you can have... Like, if you have a printmaker, right, if you have a suite of prints in a box, it's going to be more expensive and more valuable than if you bound them all together and put them in a book. And there's something that I don't know the answer to of why the binding of those prints in a book somehow devalues them than if they were just stuck in a box and it's a suite of prints that's meant to be mounted. The the first time I saw uh, Matisse's Jazz... Mm-hmm. It, I was an intern at the Library of Congress, and it was uh, on display in the National Gallery, and they turned a page, or maybe it was in the Library of Congress, I can't remember, but it was in a case, and they turned a page, like, every couple of days. Mm-hmm. And people would, like, come in to see the page turn and see what the next page looked like. Then I got my job at the HRC, the Humanities Research Center at UT, you know, excuse me, University of Texas, and they had a copy of Jazz, and I got to hold it and touch it, and turn all the pages, and take a picture of every page. And I have to say, it was like 
one of the spiritual greatest spiritual experiences of my life to handle that book. And that's like one of the ultimate, the penultimate artist books. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's like the prototype of an artist book, Matisse's Jazz. I mean, I was almost in tears when I handled it. It was so moving and so breathtaking. So, yeah, I mean, books are meant to be handled and touched, and it, it really changes things. And for, I think for a long time, it was a liability in terms of getting the recognition that they really needed as fine art, because you don't touch fine art. You know, when that James Sienna book I mentioned, the sequence one, 2009, basically it's, I don't know, 40 or 50 or 60 wood block print. Basically starts off with a single strip of wood and each print adds more pieces of wood and it creates a maze-like thing. And it's an accordion book and it assembles on one side and then it disassembles on the other side. And if you set it up, so you can see the whole thing. It's like 25 to 30 feet long. I just happened to be in New York when James Siena was having a show at Pace Gallery. And the book had just come out. As far as I knew, they were going to display the book at the show. So I called him up and I said, Hey, I'd, I'd love to come to the show, but I'd like to meet you. So he says, Come on over to the studio and we'll, let's, we'll have a beer before the show. We'll go over to the show together. <laughs> and so uh, we get to the show... And they had a suite of the prints, each one framed. They had built a monolith wall in the middle of the gallery, kind of like in 2001 A Space Odyssey, with all of the prints in frames hanging on it, and the book was nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, I said, well, where's the book? He says, well, you have to go up to the office to look at the book. Well, the office was closed because everybody was down at the show, the opening. And I had a whole bunch of his paintings and stuff. This was just like the featured work. Now, I have heard subsequently since then, I was talking to um, uh, Marshall Weber of Brooklyn in, in Brooklyn, New York. He said that would never happen now. He said the book would have been on display mm-hmm. in a big giant vitrine. You would have been able to walk around the book. It was interesting to see that, but he says that's not the work of art that was made. Right. It was the book. So yeah, it was a it was still a kind of super cool thing. It was still really disappointing that the book wasn't there. But then MoMA bought a copy and they had built a special vitrine for the book in the middle of the gallery. When you walked in, that's what you saw and you could walk around and see it from both sides, the whole accordion. Nice. Mm. Yeah. Um is there anything else or should we just I'm good. Yeah. I'm gonna turn this off. <laughs> Welcome back, and thanks for listening to Books in the Wild. You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this now, or go to booksinthewild.com. I also have my own artist website up and running again, thanks to Studio Bianca, and that website is carrieschroeder.com. Thanks again, and I will be back in one month. Do you want to take a quick break and get another drink while I come up with some more? Talking points? Sure. No? I'm okay on beer, so... I'm never okay on beer. You can have another.